Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man seen running from the scene. Officers also reportedly... By the time Walter Cronkite is delivering this news to America, this is the night of April 4th, 1968. The guy he's describing just then, this young, well-dressed white man, this early initial suspect, he's already gone from Memphis. He somehow slipped a police cordon that's been set up. All tank units on the call, you are to form a ring around the Lorraine Hotel. You are to form a ring around the Lorraine Hotel. No one is to enter or leave. Well, someone leaves. The someone that they think they want. And he's leaving town in a white Mustang. But meanwhile, there's this mysterious radio signal. And it's never really been explained. But it's got the cops fucked up. This white Mustang is shooting at the blue Pontiac following him. Okay, that's not really happening. There is no blue Pontiac. There's no blue Pontiac in pursuit of a white Mustang. They're not trading gunfire. They're not hauling ass to the north side of the city. But the cops think they are. And now they're sending squad cars, trying to head off the guy they think they want, leaving on the north side of the city. On the way to Raleigh. On the way to Raleigh, north on Jackson. North on Jackson toward Raleigh. A blue Pontiac occupied by three white males. Okay, north on Jackson toward Raleigh is the complete opposite direction of where they want to be headed. The guy they want is headed south. Now, he's in a white Mustang, but this white Mustang north of town is a complete phantom, as is the blue Pontiac. But somebody or some bodies have gotten onto CB radio and they've convinced the cops that they need to be heading north and fast. He went through the light at Jackson Stage Road at 95 miles an hour, continuing north on Austin Peak. And just like that, the Memphis police lose their man. With their attention drawn to the north side of the city, they ain't no way they're catching the guy dipping south. And so if you're prone to believing that the assassination of Dr. King was a conspiracy, well, there's your first clue right there. And now here's your second. And it's way more fucked up. Around that same time, in Atlanta, FBI agent Arthur Murtaugh is leaving his post. I was designated as the agent in Atlanta to handle Black Probe. That's Murtaugh speaking to the BBC in the 90s. Now, Black Probe was this really targeted effort from the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, to surveil and spy on and infiltrate and cultivate informers to really penetrate King's group. During that same period, there was a vendetta against King uh, that uh, gained in, in momentum as the years went by. It was about uh, between six and seven. I remember that it was beginning to get dark, and I was standing at the sign out desk with another agent, and it, the news came over the radio that uh, Dr. King had been shot and killed in uh, Memphis. And uh, this agent, uh, at that moment, uh, turned to me and uh, hit his fist together like that and said something to the effect, by God, we finally got him. That was what, it was the we that uh, stuck in my mind. He didn't say they, he said we. The murder of Martin Luther King Jr. is a case that refuses to be closed. Did you fire the shots that killed Dr. Martin Luther King? No, not. I may not get that with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. 
Welcome to The Crops. I'm Matt Pulver. So I've been trying to figure out who killed Dr. Martin Luther King. Whether or not there was a conspiracy. Because if you're anything like me, at some point along the way, the official story told about the death of Dr. King. The state story, which is the cop story, starts to sound a little flimsy. And when the cop's story about the death of a black man sounds a little flimsy at all, you probably need to look into it. And when it sounds flimsy about the death of a black man who was creating problems for those cops and for the people those cops represent, you sure enough better look into it. And I realized I've never looked into it. Like, not really, not really at all. And now listen, you don't have to be like Noam Chomsky or Angela Davis or somebody to be skeptical about state power when it comes to black descent. I mean, here's Cardi B, of all people, on The Breakfast Club, like a couple months ago. I saw you were in Flint, Michigan. Yeah. And the people there were very excited, and it was nice that you shouted everybody out there. And you got on that stage and said, F the government. Yeah, you know what? I'm not, I'm gonna just stop talking about the government before I get <laughs> too packed out. You know what I'm saying? I keep seeing like people be like, you better be quiet before they assassinate your ass. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. No. You're right. And now listen, no shade to Cardi B, but even she knows that making trouble for the government, especially if you're black, has historically been a risky endeavor in this country. And I mean, listen, Cardi B is not in any sort of danger, of course, right? But she's responding to this history that's shared by a lot of people and understanding that making problems for people in power, for people in the government, can be really dangerous. This is pretty commonly understood, at least among some folks. Tell the government, come shoot me, nigga. Now, that's, of course, Kendrick Lamar from an early song back in 2010. And that was a big theme of his work back when I got hip to him, that a radical position versus the government was dangerous, like to oneself. Tell a government, come shoot me, nigga. If you listen to enough hip hop and you're like not a dick, you're probably going to need to adjust your understanding of the history of the government's response to black liberation and poor people's movements generally. I mean, if you don't already know, I mean, you might feel the need to read up on COINTELPRO and the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover. So let me bring back that Kendrick with a few more bars. Tell a government, come shoot me, nigga. Cause I'm going out with a fist raised and a fist full of money. Give it to the fifth grade, drink a fifth of Hennessy and then take another fade with a Democratic politician from CA. They don't want to see ABLACK. So the government will shoot Kendrick. The government will kill Kendrick for engaging in some sort of radical political activity. That's what's going on there in those bars. But you realize the only radical, and it's not even radical. I mean, he he talks about giving money to fifth graders with a sort of black power fist in the air, which doesn't sound very radical. But it was in the late 60s, if you were the Black Panthers, the Black Panthers had something called the Breakfast for Children program. And the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, considered it one of the essentially one of the greatest threats to the order, like the order of white power and white supremacy and 
capitalism and all these sorts of things. Like J. Edgar Hoover was feeling the type of way about the Black Panthers feeding school children. So then that Kendrick line starts to make sense. I mean, J. Edgar Hoover called the Breakfast for, for Children program, quote, potentially the greatest threat to efforts by authorities to neutralize the Black Panther Party and destroy what it stands for. Do you know what the Panthers stood for back then? Like not getting killed by the cops, getting kids fed, stuff like that. And the FBI responded with a war on that effort. A lot of Panthers ended up dead in jail, in exile. Here's more Kendrick. And I want everybody to view my autopsy so you can see exactly where the government has shot me. Now that's from a song called High Power. It was released about a year after the one I played for you before. And in the video for High Power, Kendrick suggests a sort of martyrdom that comes with black radical politics. The song is about Dr. King and Malcolm X and a number of the Panthers who died. But the video is composed largely, almost entirely, of footage from the Arab Spring, which at that point was in full swing. And at the end of the video, Kendrick takes out a gas can and he raises it above his head and he, and he tips it and then he starts to douse himself in gasoline and he strikes a match. And now this was a really powerful image back then. It still is. What Kendrick is doing is he's echoing the, the sort of seminal event of the Arab Spring, the thing that kicked it all off in Tunisia, when Mohamed Bouazizi set himself on fire and started a wave of revolutions. For Kendrick, speaking truth to power in America, or anywhere, but in his American experience, means danger. I mean, it can mean death. For Kendrick, speaking truth to power, like actual ass truth to actual power, is deadly dangerous. I mean, if the cops are out here killing people for for nothing, for looking at them wrong, more or less, what happens if you're a black man and you're actually kicking up dust, or you're a black woman and you're actually creating problems for these powerful white guys with guns? So this is a theme in Killer Mike's work, too. And that's another rapper I've spent a good bit of time with over the past several years. And I promise this is the last one. But just as a sort of preface or, or introduction, Killer Mike has taught me a lot, too. And he returns to this idea of black radicalism or political radicalism generally. I mean, white, black or otherwise, but especially black as being tremendously dangerous, as involving potentially martyrdom. So you listen to enough Kendrick or Killer Mike or whoever, the list goes on. And you read more about COINTELPRO and Black Probe and the FBI under Hoover. And you realize, why the fuck have I never looked into this? Like, seriously, why have I never looked into this? And then Black Lives Matter hits. And then there are a whole lot more of us on deck. And we're all parsing the evidence in the death of Michael Brown and Sandra Bland and Tamir Rice, and the list goes on and on. And there needs to be more of that. We need more people doing more. But again, at some point I looked up and I realized, why is nobody looking into the death of Dr. King? Like, I don't know who killed Dr. King. Because a lot of people are saying the government did it. 
Like a whole lot of people are saying the government did it. I mean, I've been listening to musicians since I was like a little kid who all said King was killed by the government. But nobody's really ever been out here with like evidence. You know what I mean? Like, like OJ Simpson trial type evidence where, you know, people are talking about the glove and this, that, and the other, or like that making a murderer show, you know, where everybody was talking about the, the fire pit out behind homeboy's house or whatever, the DNA on this part of the car, but not on that part of the car and whatever. I mean, for until very recently, I could rattle off for you all manner of evidence about Stephen Avery or OJ or Adnan, but I couldn't tell you jack shit about the King killing. Not one piece of evidence, physical or circumstantial or otherwise. And again, no shade to those shows. I mean, we have to make sure that the innocent aren't, you know, punished and that the guilty are held to account. But as long as we're making, you know, shows about the O.J. Simpson trial, somebody's got to be looking into the king killing. And listen, I'm not that guy. That might already be apparent to you, and it might become apparent as we continue. I'm not that guy. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. All I know is that I'm doing it. I mean, I've got my questions, my curiosity, and and a microphone. And so I'm going to just do this, I guess. So let's, let's do it. Okay. So let's rejoin the action that I left off at the beginning of the episode where we have this white guy leaving Memphis. He's headed toward Atlanta. Now the role that that mysterious CB radio signal played is really tough to measure. We'll revisit it, but for now, let's just know that this guy is leaving Memphis and he's headed toward Atlanta. And it looks like he's in a hurry. Okay, he stops maybe once or twice through the night. He gets to Atlanta at dawn. He's in Atlanta for no time. He's basically picking up some stuff. He turns from there, goes to Canada. So to give you an idea of how quick this guy's moving, he gets from Memphis to the Canadian border in like 40 hours. Okay, that's pretty suspicious. At, at first glance, that's really suspicious. Now, he spends a good bit more time in Canada, but then he goes from Canada to London. And it's in London that he's eventually apprehended and brought back to the States. That's real suspicious. What's way more suspicious is that he's changing his name at every turn. So he's John Willard when he's in Memphis. He's Harvey Lohmeyer in Alabama. Uh, he's Ramon Snade in Canada. He's Paul Bridgman in Canada. He's Eric S. Galt pretty much everywhere. Eric Starvo Galt. He really loved that name. That was, you know, fairly standard with him almost everywhere. But he's got like maybe 10, 15 more of these names. Okay, so that's wild suspicious. I mean, all that moving, all those names. I mean, he leaves Memphis before King is pronounced dead. That's real suspicious. Until... You understand that that's how that guy lived. That's how he lived before April 4th, 1968, 6.01 p.m. Like his behavior after that point just isn't that unusual. It isn't at all unusual. Listen, the guy breaks out of prison in late April, 1967. King is killed April 4th, 1968. 
In that 11 months, this guy that we know now as James O'Reilly was crisscrossing the entire continent, like not just the U.S., but the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Okay. I mean, when the guy goes down to Mexico, he doesn't, and he doesn't just go across the border to Tijuana or, you know, Juarez or something. This guy goes all the way down to like Mexico City. He goes over to the West Coast of Mexico, drives up the West Coast of Mexico, goes to LA. He goes to Chicago, to New Orleans, to Miami, Atlanta, St. Louis. This is a simplified itinerary that I'm giving you. And this is in 11 months. And the whole time he's changing his name. Because that's how he was taught to do. Okay. His dad was the same way. And listen, when when James was seven, his dad skipped bond on some charge. And he took the wife and kids off to some country ass hideaway to, to duck the law. And he, and he changed their name to Reigns. He just added an N and an S to Ray. I mean, his dad was changing his name so much that Ray's brother would later tell the FBI that he was 20 years old before he knew his own name, like his real ass government name, because his dad was dragging them all over the Midwest because he was a just a, a shitty crook. He dragged them off to some at some point, this country ass piece of shit, abject shack. And they just lived in utter Utter penury. I mean, James O'Reilly flunked. First of all, he flunked the first grade, you know, when they were on the run. He's going to some little schoolhouse in just bumfuck Missouri. And he, he shows up to class. His teacher would later say this kid would show up to class barefoot and reeking of urine. I mean, they were, this was gully. The Ray family was gully as fuck. That's how this guy came up. And he just like went into the family business. Like redneck, petty criminality. I'll let Hosea tell it. He's just a two-bit redneck out in the street. A hustler. Ray is this like stick-up kid who, who also can do burglaries, but he's shitty at them. So he gets caught like always. Two-bit redneck. And then gets carted off to prison. But what he's good at, what, what sort of distinguishes Ray, James, from the rest of his family, is that he is going to break out of prison. Like, he's like this little, little redneck hamster that is going to get out. Always. He's just a two-bit redneck out in the street. A hustler. Redneck. Two-bit, two-bit out, out in the street. He's just a two-bit redneck out in the street. A hustler. Took him a long time to get out of Jeff City. That's where he broke out of in, in April of 67. Took him a long time. Took him multiple attempts. But he eventually got out through in a, in a bread box. He like worked his way into the bakery as his job. And then he gets out with this like, like this, it's like a shitty carnival trick. He, he balls himself up in this box of baked bread that they were sending to like other inmates on this truck. And it works. It's it's a pretty improbable escape, really, but it works. And then he does what what he's going to do, which is just to tear ass around and, you know, commit some crimes and and change his name a bunch. So 
you know, all this is to say that his behavior after April 4th is just not unusual. I mean, even leaving the country. Now, he hadn't done that before, but he'd always been trying to like finagle ways out of the country, like off the continent, you know, away from the American authorities, away from the law forever. When he had done a bit at, at Leavenworth, he, he tried to teach himself Spanish, you know, thinking that if he could get the right documentation, he could he could hide away in Mexico forever and just be good. You know, other times when he was in Canada, he would he would hang out in Montreal and try to get the proper documentation to, you know, get on a boat and sail off and never have to worry about the cops again. You know, that 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 was at least the way he tells it. That was a you know, that was a dream of his. OK, but let's consider some more evidence. Where was Ray when the assassination occurred? Like, we know he was in Memphis. I mean, he admits this. But where in Memphis? Where are we able to place Ray when the shooting occurred? Well, that's not hard either, because Ray doesn't dispute it. He was at Bessie Brewer's Flophouse, this boarding house right across the street from the Lorraine Motel. Ray freely admits this. And he's never said any different. And he was there as late as some minutes before the, the shot was fired. Or when the shot was fired, depending on who you believe. And he had a gun. I mean, he had a couple guns. He had one he bought just recently. So this outlaw, during this year-long odyssey after breaking out of prison was on April 4th, 1968, across the street from the Lorraine. He leaves town almost immediately after the shot that killed King was fired. And that man disputes none of this. The FBI names him as the suspect. They catch him. And he's locked up. And except for a brief time after yet another prison break, he spent the remaining days of his life in prison for killing Dr. King. And yet Coretta Scott King, the late wife of Dr. King, says Ray didn't do it. She says that it was a conspiracy inside the government. And now listen, Coretta is not your Alex Jones listening college roommate, you know, on some jet fuel camp melt steel beam shit. Right? I mean, this is Coretta. I mean, Coretta was so stately and, and regal. This is sweet wing Coretta. And Coretta knew things. She knew things way before the rest of us, way before COINTELPRO and all this would come out. She knew that there were people in the government that hated her husband. She knew that there were people in the government, specifically the FBI, who wanted her husband dead. Coretta was the one who opened the infamous suicide letter that was sent to King way before he became more radical, way before he was the danger that he was in 1968. And they tried to get him to kill himself because they didn't give a shit about that guy. Or they didn't give a shit about his life or his family or his people. 
they cared about him as a threat and they needed that neutralized. And now we'll get into all of this as we go on. It's voluminous, just the stuff that's been released. But all of this stuff that we know now, and maybe some stuff that we won't ever know, Coretta knew. She was there. She was closer than anybody. And the people who were also close, the people in King's Inner Circle, all agree with Coretta. They all agree to a one that there was a conspiracy inside the government because they all knew to a one the extent to which there were people inside the government who hated Dr. King. They hated him. They despised him. They feared him. They knew that King had become a threat to the order. The order that that people and forces inside the government felt that they were charged to protect. The order of white supremacy and capitalism and imperialism. They knew that if you if you challenged the 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 citadel of power in this country, your your days are numbered. And so, you know, guys like Hosea Williams at the, at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC, um, a close confidant of, of Kings, you know, he agrees with Coretta. Um, Ralph Abernathy, who succeeded King as, as head at the SCLC, he agrees with Coretta. Government conspiracy. Even somebody like Andrew Young, who becomes mayor of Atlanta, he's, you know, U.S. represent, U.S. congressman. This is a guy who, who, emerges as the most sort of esteemed and and accomplished survivor of the civil rights era. You know, him and John Lewis. And he agrees with Coretta that there was a conspiracy of people inside the government to kill Dr. King. And this was the UN ambassador. This guy had to go on the world stage as the sort of sole you know, representative of the United States of America and be, you know, on some, you know, your country ain't shit. You're not shit because, you know, y'all are running secret police operations or whatever, knowing full well that his own country was running a secret police operation called the FBI. Cause that's what it was during the sixties, especially vis-a-vis the civil rights struggle. Like that's what it was. And again, we will get into all this. There is ample documentation. You can just trust me on this. But a guy like Young, I don't know. I sort of get the feeling that he just, he really didn't want to believe it. You know, because he was getting to enjoy these historic, you know, gains won by King and others, where he's able to be the UN ambassador to the world. For the first time, the United States chose a black man to represent itself to the world. He doesn't want to believe it. Here's some sound from the 90s where he's talking to Forrest Sawyer of ABC. James Earl Ray, in your heart of hearts at this moment, you think he is innocent? Yeah, I do. It's that pause. 
There's so much in that pause. Let me play it again. James Earl Ray, in your heart of hearts at this moment, you think he is innocent? Yeah, I do. It's that breath and the pause, and then the way he says it, it's it's like a sigh of resignation. He's just so reluctantly resigned to this understanding. He doesn't want to believe it. It'd be so much easier to believe the official narrative. It's so less complicated that way. I mean, it's it, it must be such a burden for Young and for Coretta and, and Coretta's children, um, basically all the folks in the movement who understand that, that this was a conspiracy. You know, but they, they knew too much to accept the state story, the cops story, the FBI's story, because it is the FBI's story that gets told. It's the FBI that gets to write the story of what happened on April 4th, 1968. Because here's the thing. James Earl Ray was never tried in a courtroom for the assassination. He pled guilty, which means you forego a trial. Now, the plea itself was curious, and we'll get into it later, and he retracts it three days later. He says the plea was made under duress, and he spends the next like three decades of his life contending that there was a conspiracy, and that he'd been dragged unwittingly into this ordeal as a, as a patsy, as this decoy designed to get caught so the real killers could get away. But what the plea means is that the FBI investigation was never contested in a courtroom, like with a jury. The FBI's story of what happened on April 4th, 1968, ended up getting registered as the official account of what went down. The FBI and J. Edgar Hoover's story never got opposed in a courtroom. There was never another side of the story that was heard. So the one armed organization that we know for a fact wanted King dead, thanks to the revelation of the suicide letter, is the group that tells us who killed King. And Coretta and, and Ralph and Hosea and Andrew are, and the whole rest of them are not into that. They're not buying it. Like something smelled wrong early on for them. They don't know everything. They don't know much at that point, but they know enough and they start making their push so that by 1975, Ralph Abernathy, who's then president of the SCLC, he goes to Washington with other civil rights leaders to demand an investigation of the assassination, like an official investigation. And they want a trial for Ray. They think Ray is innocent. Because I think that the full truth uh, will come out. And some people in very high places will be involved, uh, persons more than James Earl Ray. That's Abernathy there. And it's, again, it's 1975 and, and he and others with Abernathy's sort of at the, at the head of things, they've gone to Washington and they say in this press conference that we're here, we're calling people out and we're going to keep coming back until we see an investigation. And surprisingly, enough people are listening. And Congress announces that next year, the formation of the House Select Committee on Assassinations. It's split between the Kennedy assassination, which, of course, garners vastly more coverage. For reasons that are just a fucking mystery to me. 
and the King assassination. And so this is the time that things really start accelerating. Like Coretta and, and, and King's associates start to become more, more public and open with their suspicions. I believe that the FBI had uh, something to do with that conspiracy. Now that's Coretta there. And that's significant. That's the first time that she's ever gone public with her suspicions. This is 1978, and it's just a couple months before the conclusion of the Committee on Assassinations. But something's already been leaked to her from the committee. Now, this is speculative on my part. I mean, partially. We know for a fact that something got leaked from the committee to Andrew Young. And one would assume that was then passed to Coretta. That would make sense. And that's why she suddenly feels free to, you know, publicly voice her suspicions about the FBI. Because this information didn't come from some staffer or some lackey. This came from the chairman of the committee, Walter Fauntroy. He's a member of Congress from D.C. at that point. And he passes something on to Andrew Young. Ambassador Andrew Young at that point. Something that convinces Young and his people, like straight up and down, 100%, it was the FBI. And I think they all get convinced that the final report is going to reveal this. And I would suspect that Young passes this information on to Coretta. And so Coretta, still some months before the committee would conclude she feels comfortable coming out with her suspicions and she names the FBI, which can't be a fun thing to do to go in front of some cameras and call out the FBI for the assassination of your husband. I mean, think about some of these white folks out here in 2016 feeling away about black lives matter. Like when you talk about police violence against people of color, mostly black men. There are a lot of white folks out here that are just get all in their feelings about it. And that's in 2016. Can you imagine going in front of the country and saying that your husband was killed by the government? White folks are going to flip the fuck out and they're going to call you crazy and all this. But something had been passed from font Roy to young. And I won't get into it all here. I'll, I'll post this in show notes. There's a transcript from the, from the committee that gets into this, that reveals this, but it never shows up in the final report. So I don't know what it was that got passed because the committee report just ends up maintaining the status quo. James O'Reilly, lone gunman, lone wolf, no government involvement, no conspiracy. And so I do wonder how Coretta felt. Especially her, since she went fully public. But also Andrew Young and others who have been, you know, made privy to this information. And then the committee report drops. And there's, it's not in there. The committee just, like I said, thoroughly maintains the status quo. And Coretta is not seeing it for the committee report. It appears that she's completely unfazed. And her own investigation continues. And eventually she's joined by this guy, William Pepper. He's a lawyer who met King in the last year of King's life, and they became friends and, and colleagues. And Pepper ends up devoting just decades of his life to 
to solving this mystery for the King family. And over the years, Pepper and his crew of investigators, they increasingly amass what they feel to be a, a real mountain of incriminatory evidence against forces inside the government. So that by 1999, the King family was ready to have this matter adjudicated in a courtroom. Like it never had been. Pepper and his team had found people whose stories completely contradicted that of the FBI. And suggested that Ray was, in fact, only this patsy. A dupe who was selected and then manipulated to take the blame. And Pepper had even found somebody who was willing to admit guilt. Or admit involvement. And all these folks that Pepper had found in Memphis and elsewhere were willing to go on the, on the stand and testify under oath, which they did in 1999. This matter finally was adjudicated in a courtroom with a judge and a jury. The trial goes on for 30 days. There's 70 plus witnesses. I mean, the transcript is a monster. It's like thousands of pages. So it goes on for a month with 70 plus witnesses. It takes the jury all of an hour. Not even an hour. To come back with their verdict. James Earl Ray wasn't the killer. It was the government. Number one question is can the 